Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. I am talking to Paul today. He is the founder of Thought Machine, a company that sells backend software to banks around the globe. After 20 years in academia focused on AI, Paul started the company in 2014. He raised $200 million and today Thought Machine employs 500 people around the globe. In this episode, Paul is talking about doing AI before AI was even a thing how the world of banking is changing, and how he's finding the personal journey as founder and CEO. Hi, Paul. Morning. It's great to have you here today. Uh, I was so excited to meet you today. Huge congratulations to everything you've built, to raising $200 million, becoming a unicorn. Let's, let's start by describing what Thought Machine actually does, please. Yeah, so Thought Machine is a B2B uh, fintech based in London. And we build uh, core banking engines in the cloud. Now, a core banking engine is the kind of, is the, this, as the name just uh, indicates, is the kind of the, the central part of the bank. It's the bit that has the ledger, which stores the money, and the bit that has the product engine, which runs all the products in the bank, such as, uh, you know, credit cards, mortgages, savings, and, and things like that. And we, we build this platform, and then we license it to banks, and that allows them to kind of build uh, completely cloud-native stacks. And just explain to the average person who has no clue about fintech, why on earth banks need that? Clearly, they have their own stack. So uh, the banking, the mainstream banking world has, has, uh, has drifted you know, for too long. You know, in this 1970s and 1980s, it, it used what was then quite revolutionary technology um, by using mainframes and things like this. And you know, they were very early adopters of, of high high processing volume, volume automated systems. And, and that, was, that was very good in the pre-internet era. But as the internet's developed, you know, we've developed lots of technology such as Agile, which is a way to work, and, and the cloud, which is a way to host computers, and all these other things, mobile computing, as you know. So all the things that you use day to day. But the banking world has kind of got stuck in its old ways. And increasingly, the ways that it has been doing this over the years are just becoming less and less tenable. But it's a big thing to move a bank because that's where the, you know, it's, it's a vital piece of, uh, of infrastructure. So it's not for the faint-hearted. So, so, but we decided to build a kind of revolutionary platform that uses all the best aspects of the cloud, uh, do that, and, and then enable the banks to kind of get from their legacy world into the new world. Yeah. And is, is the pitch a cost pitch? Is it an NPS pitch, i.e. it's great for customers? You know, like in a nutshell, like who, who are you talking to? The CEO, the COO, the CFO? Yeah, what, what are the benefits in a nutshell? Yeah, um, uh, most of those people. So, so it's an infrastructure play. We are mainly selling to the people who run the infrastructure in the bank, right? And, and that is uh, traditionally the bank. They have a chief information officer and that person runs the internal technology of the bank and, and, and owns that. So, so that is the primary place where, where, where that we're selling. However, the benefits are good at everybody else. So it's always a kind of, it's a cost 
time flexibility sort of equation. So it's cheaper to run, but not just cheaper because the software is cheaper. Um, it's cheaper to run because you because most of the things in the bank can be fully automated. So we do that. That allows banks to reduce costs, allows banks to invest more in kind of in more consumer facing parts of the technology stack. And then that that lets the bank launch new products quicker, needs them, leads them to respond to kind of market changes quicker and just gives a you know better all-round online experience. And obviously, Paul, you're succeeding. You raised $200 million. It's a unicorn. You've done amazingly well. However, it must be enormously resource intense to build the platform and then sell the platform, which presumably takes a long time from a sales cycle perspective. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, and, and so it, it, it goes both ways. So many of the deals we've taken have, t have literally taken years and many, many years to, to land. So You know, you, you need to be patient, but of course, we are we are replacing the heart of the bank. I mean, we're replacing something in the bank that's really, really fundamental in terms of its key strategic importance. So, yes, it takes a long time to do this, but also when when the banks you know fully engaged and bought it and gone live, you know, it's it's very sticky, right? So, it's, so the bank's not going to yeah, mm -hmm. the bank's not just going to change its mind overnight and 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 uh, and go off and do something else. It, it, it's, it's, so, being able to Uh, yes, it takes a long time to land, but the banks are what you call very faithful customers when they do arrive. That means so two, three years to get to get a large bank deal, but then, you know, 10 to 20 years of a, of a relationship afterwards. And so are you focused on the UK banks or, you know, is there like a specific type of bank that fits the mold the most? Not really. No, um, Thought Machine operates globally. Our headquarters are in London, but we have offices in Singapore. We have offices in New York. You know, we've got sales offices more than 18 different countries now. Oh. Uh, and we sell from, you know, uh, North America. We sell uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, all around Europe, you know, and we've got offices in Australia. So, it, 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 so it's very international. And also on another dimension, the scale of the bank. A, a, a wide variety of this in the scale of the bank, right from, you know, kind of startup banks all the way up to kind of uh, global multinational banks. And if you had to dimensionalize what you're doing, you know, on the one side, there's kind of Salesforce, millions of customers, plug and play, no customization. And then on the other side, there's kind of Palantir, you know, uh, fit for purpose, totally customized per customer. Where, where do you sit? Like how much customization is there? Well, right. So, so the, the trick Kind of the key play for us is that we do not do any customization of the product. So, so we build one product and we sell, sell exactly the same product to every bank. And of course, being a, a, cloud, a proper cloud native solution, it is the same piece of software that can scale from a bank with a few thousand customers to a bank with you know, many tens of millions of customers. So, so the same piece of software can scale, uh, scale very well in, in that direction. But the bank wants to configure the software so that it can run its own suite of products. So, so uh, while the differences may be subtle, every bank has its own way of doing mortgages or credit cards or, or deposits or loans. It, it, so we've got a kind of hyper-configurable, hyper what we call a configuration layer. And in that, banks can, they've got a high degree of ability to write or customize any of the products they want. So for, from our point of view, we're selling a single product, but from their point of view, they've got rich customization features and those customization features do it. But they can... But the, 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 the art of the thing is being able to allow them to customize the bank without having to modify the source code or the platform itself. Because 
once you do that, then you've got a huge kind of maintenance headache, and um, you know, and, and that just that just slows everything down. And I mean, the average person um, has no clue about fintech. I, I've been really lucky. I've been on a fintech board for the last four years. Great company, raised raised a decent amount of money. Flexstone, where you can maximize your your interest on savings. It's a great product. But but just kind of if you step away from thought machine, what are kind of the macro trends in banking today in the next ten years? Uh, I guess especially all these neo banks. Yeah, so, it's, so that is a very difficult question to answer. So the kind of selfish answer from Thought Machine's perspective is that we are selling to small banks, large banks, uh, new banks, old banks, and, and therefore we we are in a good position regardless of who wins in the market. So we're, we are not in the position of, of um, attaching ourselves to a particular market segment or a particular market trend, needing that to work. So, it, 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 so we are selling a, a platform to... to to lots of banks, so that's the first thing. But I think there's there's key questions that are that are out there, and I'll put it along kind of two dimensions. So one is, are the new banks going to make serious inroads into the existing banks? And that is a very difficult question to answer because the new banks are more of them arrive, they do well in terms of customer numbers, but they do not do particularly well in terms of profitability or you know real revenue earning they, they've done very well in terms of user engagement they've done very well in terms of user numbers you get good feedback from the customers in terms of how well they do but but can they break into the kind of the mainstream where banks earn their money and banks earn their money you know through lending basically and you need to be able to do lending at scale and particularly uh, so you're not going to make any money doing a thousand car loans. You have to have to do a hundred thousand car loans, and you have to do it very well. So there's that that one dimension. I think it is hard to tell. My best guess on that is that the that some of the new banks will break through at volume, and when they do break through, it's not the top banks will be pushed out, but the banks that are not doing very well, especially in the digital space, will find it harder and harder and harder to compete, and they will just become legacy institutions whereby. Uh, they serve their existing customers, but 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 no one else joins. But but that's hard to say because the neo banks get bigger and bigger every year. But they've been around quite a few years now, and they still haven't really reached a tipping point. So that's the first one. And then the second one, which is even harder to call, is the whole world of decentralized finance. And and it's a similar sort of story in a way, in that the you know the crypto world is getting bigger and bigger. It's getting more and more attention. The amount of money flowing through it is there, but it, it's it's doesn't seem to be really making any inroads into the kind of the mainstream of of how banks operate. So, you know, it, it it's still kind of got its own subculture and everything else. And you don't see many people taking out uh, crypto mortgages. So, again, it's very very easy to say. Yeah, it's what what's its purpose, but it it is um, you know it, it, you you just can't go anywhere without it being being prevalent. So, so another very difficult trend to predict. And what what kind of determines which banks in the world are the most technologically advanced banks? Is it geography, i.e., anything close to Silicon Valley is most advanced? Is it size, profitability? Like, are there any commonalities? So. I mean, kind of slightly ironically, I think it's fair to say that U.S. banking it, it does not lead the world in terms of its technological capabilities, and and it, it does differ. So each country has its own kind of uh, ecosystem of of uh, competitive nature when it comes to banks. So you would get 
you get yeah particular areas where neo banks are particularly hot and uk is 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 one where challenger banks are you're particularly active so there is that that the competitive pressures uh, make make existing banks change their behavior so if if the banking if an existing bank is if there's a lot of activity from challenger banks in that market that kind of uh, encourages strokes forces large banks to act in a particular way there's certainly differences from the regulators so some regulators are very pro-tech and they they see technology as a way to increase uh, competition and the uk regulators are, are very much of, of, of that mind so, so they're doing it and and so all, all those factors combined so there's a general movement throughout the world but definitely uh, i would not say the united states is at the front of that i, I think probably you know the uk does very well uh, Singapore and Hong Kong do particularly well. Uh, there's many, many companies in Southeast Asia whereby, you know, for example, you don't. Many people do not have bank accounts. The, the economics of a bank account doesn't work because it, bank accounts actually cost quite a lot of money. So um, there's a whole new play there whereby a lot of people, there, where a lot of uh, governments and companies and regulators are trying to get banks launched at a much lower cost point than uh, has previously been possible. In so doing, um, that increases the uh, you know that increases the number as well. So, so put all those things together, and you've got a you've got um, quite a rich ecosystem of of innovation and change. Well, like and and what like Chinese super apps that kind of understand the propensity to buy and I, I guess assign a real time credit score are in a in a better position than a US JP Morgan, for example. Uh, uh, but possibly, I mean, I, I think JP Morgan's a, a, is a client of ours and is doing very, very well. Is super confident about technology. is a deep, deep investor in the cloud. So it's uh, so I do expect uh, JP Morgan Chase to be very much at the forefront. But but yes, I mean, there's there's all sorts of things going on. Another one of our clients is Grab, and they are, you know, uh, very much very active in the uh, super apps kind of style of uh, of, of, of movement. No one's done it to the extent that it's, it's happened in China, but uh, I think that you know there's kind of various levels of critical mass and various levels of ecosystem development that that, that have to happen, and and in so doing, you know uh, that will happen. And we know that those apps are very popular in China, so uh, so there is a chance that 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 could happen here as well. And I mean, this is such an unfair question, and I apologize for even asking it. But I mean, you are building a hugely valuable business. And then you see all these neo banks, you know, valued at a huge amount, no profitability and no kind of uh, strategy to get there in the short term. We have already seen the world normalize in the last six months, to be fair. But does that feel sustainable? Let's break that down, right? So, so there's plenty of companies who've had a valuation hit in the last six months, but really they're very good, stable companies. It's just that the market is just come back to a, a, a more reasonable position that's well within the bounds of the long-term revenue and earnings multiples that would want one, one would attach. So, so I believe that's pretty healthy. That means because if markets get too frothy, then it doesn't really help anybody. So, so I, I just see that as a sensible correction. But there's lots and lots of tech companies who are really, really healthy companies. They're growing very fast. The revenue is good. The unit economics of the company is, is, is good. So, so, so there's a lot of that going on and a bit of a correction. So, so I think it's fine. All companies, unless you're just set, setting yourself up purely to be an acquisition, a target of an acquisition, all companies have to break through some level of sustainable profitability. I have no greater insights into how some of the neobanks are going to do it, but but they do have to do it. And 
some probably won't make it, but um, I hope most of them do. And I also think that a lot of them, you know, have got very experienced investors who, you know, been on boards to help develop lots of companies through growth stage and through the IPO. And one would uh, very much hope that their, their investors would be, you know, w- would be good at guiding them and then guiding them to a path to profitability in the right way. There's definitely an argument for saying that you want to go for customer growth before profitability. And that, that makes sense because, I mean, even in the UK today, we kind of feel that there's not much room for more challenger banks. We have Revolut, we have uh, Starling, we have Monzo, we have a few others. And um, you don't really feel that there's there's a lot of room there for for other ones to, uh, to jump in. So, so um, you know, there's play, but I mean, it's... it's um, Tech companies are very, it's a it's a very fast moving world. So to try and figure out who's going to win or who's going to not win in the space is, uh, is, is going to be pretty tough. And what percent of banking in the UK or, or banking customers have they managed to acquire? No, that is not a figure I know, but I believe, I believe the overall penetration is pretty big, actually. So I believe it's something like, you know, 20, wow. 20, 20 to 40 percent of people have some sort of a neobank. But but that's uh, I, I think a slightly pointier question is how many people use it as their main bank? I, I, I will admit that I I do I use Monzo as my main bank. I'm pretty happy with it. So um, well done Monzo, and I use it for you know all the day to day banking. I've got my mortgage with uh, with Coots, which is a different bank. You know, so so it's possible uh, that works out. I'm very happy with Coots as my uh, you know as my main bank for like kind of large large scale banking, but all the day-to-day stuff goes on Monzo and it, it all works very well. So, you know, maybe that's a pattern that other people will, will will end up adopting. Very, very common at the moment, I think. And look, let's let's talk a bit more about Thought Machine and your journey building Thought Machine. Like, How big is the company now in terms of, I don't know, revenue or, or number of employees, whatever you can share? Yeah, so uh, number of employees is about 500. Now, most based in London, but uh, sizable offices in uh, New York, sizable offices in Singapore, and then sales offices in, um, in in many other countries. Revenue is yet to burst through 100 million pounds. So we're, we're, we're not there. And but but hopefully in the next year or two, we'll we'll, we'll get to that sort of level. But the uh, the unit economics of Thought Machine are very, very strong. So so most of the gross margin on that is extremely high. So uh, as I said, it takes time to sign all the customers. So but the long term financial uh, profile of the company is, is extremely good. It just takes time to kind of to get that that kind of flywheel going. Been going eight years, and you know the, all the growth happened in the last last three years, say. So um, the, the, that probably gives you gives everyone you know some sort of idea. And so, because in the initial five years you focused on the product, the platform. Yeah. Um, so the very early stage was was just a discovery phase, just trying to figure out what we were going to do. We call that phase one. You know, j- just exploring in the industries because a lot of companies they they try to jump in with a solution before they really understand the market that they're playing in. So we thought, that, uh, let us have a look at this. Let us see if we can um, let's see if we can find the, the best problem out there, and after finding the best problem, then we can then we can attack it. So that was phase one, and then phase two was was building building prototypes and after the core banking engine, building the first demos, getting market validation, um, and then phase three was signing the first customers, which were 
you can build it, but if nobody wants to buy it, you, uh, you don't have a business. So, so did that, and then that kind of brings us up, up to the growth stage. Fascinating. And so, has the company composition changed? So initially, you had product people. Today, you have X percent of the business being sales people. Like, how how has the culture shifted? I think the culture is the same. It, it's it, it's always been the same, and it's something we're very proud of. The Thought Machine. We've got a very strong culture. It's a very friendly place. A very very team spirited place. Very good engagement. So we've always thought that, and it, it is. It still, in many ways, feels the same company that it that felt like in 2014 when there was 10 of us, and uh, we used to take the whole company to to breakfast every Monday, and, and that's how we had our meetings, and it was all 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 really really good fun. So I I, uh, I definitely enjoyed that. It's still, uh, even though we're 500 people, it still kind of feels feels the same place. And I really put a lot of effort into into establishing a culture early on that I thought was was good in the company, and I'm, that's something I'm particularly happy about. But but you're right. I mean, we we the only people we hired for the first while were engineers. We went quite a long time before we hired anybody who wasn't wasn't an engineer because you just need to build, and then gradually. We got a few people who knew about the banking world, and then then eventually, uh, Travers Clark Walker joined us in I think October November 2016 as the first commercial person, and then he started them. Then Liam Lee, he who now runs all of our EMEA sales, he joined about a year later, and um, and those two ran ran all the sales for a long time because you know we were still trying to sign the first customers, and then of course the sales operations now going to expand to like 150 people by the wow uh, yeah uh, by the end of the year it's, uh, selling in in uh, in multiple con- countries we, we cannot hire the sales people quick enough to get the uh, you know to, to to meet the demand and the growth of the business amazing and and i mean obviously your job changed so rapidly in the last eight years from ideation and just brainstorming and getting a prototype out there to today running a team and leading leaders just kind of dimensionalize that personal journey so i certainly know a lot more now than than it did then it, it's <laughs> i really enjoy learning stuff i mean i used to be uh i used to be an academic so so you know i i've always loved learning stuff i'm always got my nose in the book and I, I love reading stuff and then then having a really good look to see how we can apply it to thought machines. So I never apply anything just blindly, but it is fascinating to read how other companies organize, how, how business is done, and then you learn a lot of lessons from, from books and learn a lot of lessons from how people run their company. And then, of course, huge amount of hand-on experience. But the nice thing about the company is that it grows quickly, but not so quickly that you can't learn. So it grows quickly, goes quickly enough, but I, but there always seems to be enough time to learn the next bit. And for example, we're we've just closed our Series D, and we're moving towards yeah, we're starting to think about IPO and things like that, which all happened like two, two, three years from now. But but there's always enough time to to try and figure out to learn how to do the next step because people people often think that the you know if you're an early stage founder, you can't be a growth stage founder, and if you're a growth stage person, you can't be an IPO person, but well, that may be true in some cases. You know, there's nothing like nothing like hands-on experience and, and learning how to do it. And I, I very much like ch- the changing nature of the job and, and how to do it. There's no part of me that that, that longs for the old days when you know it was so much simpler. That, that, that that's just not true. Uh, you know, I I enjoy it today more than I've ever enjoyed it. But I think that makes you really special. Not many people from a personal preference point of view, want to be, um, you know, want to go all the way. Most founders go back to founding or angel investing or something. So that's quite remarkable. 
Yeah, I, I, I see that. So I, I listened to the VC20 podcast, which concentrates more on the VC finding, but you see, you hear that story a lot, right? You hear the story where the founders, in some sense, they admit that they don't really enjoy running companies, that they, they enjoy the products, they enjoy the market, they enjoy, you know, various things like that, but they don't really deep down enjoy running a company. And so when they get an exit, they're very happy to not run a company again. They then get involved in the angel world, the venture capital world or something like that. So, so that is a pattern, but, but, but I'm not like that. I mean, I, I genuinely enjoy running a company and there's basically nothing that I don't enjoy. So, so people, you know, you'll see a lot of leaders, they will kind of complain about people. Oh, it's so difficult to organize people or so difficult to manage. And, oh, there's so many problems that come to your desk and I wish it was free. But uh, I don't think that at all. You know, I, I, I enjoy every, I'm not saying I'm good at every aspect of it, but I enjoy every aspect of it. And I never think that, you know, I, I never really wish it was easier or wish I didn't have to do things, you know, that's what to me being a good CEO is that, that you enjoy all, all the aspects of the business and you're you're happy to do whatever's needed. I, I totally relate, Paul. I mean, Gusto today has 2,000 employees. I'm on year 10 of building Gusto and I feel hugely privileged um, to do what I do. And I feel like today is, is, is so much more exciting than 10 years ago because now we have the resource, the platform, the impact, which we didn't have before. Uh, and still the job is changing all the time. And as you said, you have time to grow. Um, you mentioned being an academic. I'd love to go back and kind of understand where you've come from professionally. Uh, let me start at the journey in Edinburgh. So I, I, I became, became dimly aware of the world of speech and the world of AI when I was an undergraduate and then applied to Edinburgh University and got accepted as a PhD student there and, and did that. And that was the first thing that I really found that I really loved. I mean, I, I just absolutely thought it was fantastic, you know, so I could, uh, and I was building speech recognition systems and text -to speech systems. And it was really, really good fun. A lot of it was, Can I just make a brief comment, Paul? Sure. Today, everyone listening is like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's a typical degree somebody might go for. But but like, take us back because that's kind of before AI, you know, reached the cloud it's now reached. Yeah, uh, 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 and that's that's a good point. So, so when I did it, it was a very, very, very niche activity. It was even a niche activity within the computer science and engineering departments of the universities that were doing it. So so. Even then, people thought, yeah, AI, come on, what, what, what's, what's the point? And there was always a feeling that it was never going to work. It was always taking too long. Um, what was the point? And, and certainly there was times when I felt that, you know, that I'd put an awful lot of personal investment into this career path. And was it really worth it? Was it really paying off? Was it really what I wanted? You know, was it really worth the effort? It's extraordinarily hard to, to get anything to work. Partly because we didn't have the compute power, partly because we didn't, uh, mostly because we didn't have the data. So, uh, in, in fact, many of our algorithms and approaches were, were pretty good. Uh, we we just, just didn't have the, the muscle to kind of really do it. But it was tremendous fun. And I mean, I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. And, you know, AI in the 90s was just, it was just, it's a happy time. Um, <laughs> everyone knew everybody in the field. It was, it was friendly. It was good fun. It was quite very exciting. And no one, no one in the broader world cared at all, uh, and, and therefore we we had all these debates about computers taking over the world, and you know what does it mean, and you know should computers have morals, and uh, can computers think? So we had all this, but 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 no one else listened, and and it was uh, it, it was good fun. We had all the, those debates ourselves, 
And then gradually, very gradually, it kind of became more and more, uh, the systems got better and better. And then, you know, maybe, uh, what about 10 years ago, there was a tipping point with, uh, with you know, Google Home and Siri and Alexa and all these systems. And then, then there was an explosion. And, and now everybody has an opinion about AI and things like that. But, but as soon as that happened, I left. Uh, I thought, right, I, I've, I'm a pioneer. I'm not a... Uh, I'm not in here for the rest of my life, and so uh, so I had a change then. So you enjoyed the R in R and D, but not the D, and you felt like that you know that's that's becoming old news. Yeah, it wasn't so much that. It's just that the it, it's still a very very tough field to get anything working. Mm. So it doesn't matter if you're doing image recognition or speech recognition. It's really really tough, and I just thought I wanted to try something else. It, 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 so I thoroughly enjoyed it. I became very, very good at speech at speech technology, but I just, I, I just wanted to try something else. You know, it was personal in that level. You know, you've you reach a crux in your life, and you're going to do things really the same thing forever. You're going to change. And what did you change to? Uh, well, well, fintech. So, so, and and that that's why uh, that was the change in thought machine. It wasn't that fintech was the thing that I most wanted to do, but I wanted to do something that was that was more of an execution play that whereby it wasn't about theoretical getting theoretical research working it was about doing something extremely well and building software you know that really really satisfied a, a kind of a, a clear and clear and identifiable need and then so you had a brief stop at google and then into fintech yes so google acquired my last the last company I founded and then, then I worked for Google for three years and I built the text speech system at Google along with the colleagues, my colleagues who were also acquired. And then, then, and that, that is the text speech system you hear everywhere in Google. So, so uh, when I get an Uber, I hear them, the voice, wow. uh, the, the, the voice directions and the navigation. And um, I've just got a new home and I'm installing the Wi-Fi, and the Wi-Fi talks to me and, and all, all, all that's in, in the, uh, in the systems that, uh, that we built about 10 years ago. Wow, amazing. And so you didn't feel like I, you know, I should be living on an island now. You you're kind of deciding, well, you know, it's time to join fintech. Yeah, I mean, uh, Google bought my last company, but they didn't buy it for enough. So uh, so, so there's no island, but um maybe one day, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you're on a great path. And and so um you know, how how do you stay kind of sharp today? You've got so many tasks every single day. You know, how do you how do you still keep on reading? I first of all, I, I do the thing that everybody says they should do, but they rarely back themselves. I mean, I've got an incredibly good team, right? And my team, my senior team, and the people who work closely with me are very, very good. And because they're very, very good, I trust them to do everything that's needed to do. So, it's, so having that excellent team means that I, I can really take a step back, and it means that I can. I trust them to do sales. I trust them to build the product. I trust them to do the organizational things that need to need to be done so that helps and then then that frees up time for you know thinking of the big picture stuff or thinking of the what's next and i always try and think if yeah i make sure that today today happens and it's going to happen but you cannot be in the weeds every single day so and i try to block out time to make sure that you know the next year and the next year that we're we're, we're putting our our attention on the how to do this and how, and, and, and how to build you know thought machine of 2023 the thought machine of 2024 And like, how, and what do you do to unwind? Presumably, the job is quite intense. Yeah, I don't. Do, I don't do an awful lot. Though, <laughs> to be honest, it, it, it's it's very yeah, it's very very uh, time consuming. So, so uh, at the weekends, I mean, I, I I used to have a I used to be 
play music and things like that. And, and I still do a bit, but the weekends I just try and turn off uh, and enjoy it. We've just bought a new house, so I'm enjoying getting to grips with the new house and, and getting things built. And uh, that's kind of good fun because it's it's not as you know it's uh, it's very satisfying, but it's it's not kind of intrinsically difficult the way uh, building a company is. And you alluded to there potentially being an IPO in the in the near future or medium term future. Like, what what is kind of the the motivation for you? You know, how does the future look for you on a personal level? Yeah, so some as you well know, some companies are kind of suited towards an IPO. And others aren't, but Thought Machine is very, very suited towards an IPO because it's got it's it's got a lot of characteristics that make it very friendly from a public market uh, perspective. It's got very predictable revenues, very predictable, very clear path path to profitability, very stable. It's very obvious what the business model is. So a lot of reasons why some tech companies struggle in the public market is the investors' quotes, you know, don't really get it. Uh, whereas Thought Machine's pr pretty, even though the technology is very advanced, uh, the business model is pretty obvious, and and that, it, and it has those attractive characteristics. So we'll do it. But that said, we we need to get to a more, at least one more stage of success above where we are. The 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 size j just isn't quite there yet. So we will do that, and um, and 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 then we'll IPO. Uh, but but I'm I'm pretty happy where I am. I mean, I, I I've got I've got no I've got no no desire to have uh, to stop anytime soon. I'll stop either when I stop enjoying it or when I stop being any good at it or perhaps when the board thinks that I'm not being any good at it. But it's uh, but there's there's no um, there's no intention to do anything different for the, for the foreseeable future. I mean, there's so much opportunity ahead. It's it's super exciting. Paul, I want to say thank you. Um, it's been really fascinating to learn about the company. Huge congratulations and all the very best to the future. 